This is Conversations with Mashi Lipsker. Good Nerv Shabbos. I'm so excited to be here with you on this very special Erev Shabbos. And it seems like I always say that, but I think that's the message of living with the Torah portion of the week. As the first Lubavitcher Rebbe said, one must live with the times. And the word that's emphasized here is to live, not just study, but to actually draw energy, inspiration, upliftment, and pertinence, messages, hope, understanding, explanations that actually address life, address what we're going through right now, address a solution, suggest the way our greats dealt with things and inform us of superior, integrated, spiritually integrated into physically solutions, which are like vitamins, like medicine, like acupuncture, acupuncture, massage, you name it. Can you imagine when we have a problem, there is not just a solution for some, but a solution that will speak to all, some a bit more loudly, clearly, some we say, aha, I needed that once upon a time. I'm going to listen carefully so I can share it with someone else or use it at a later stage. Torah is called Torah's Chaim, the Torah of life. What is life? Life needs to be imbued with all we've got. Life is everything. And we need to bring Chayas, Chay, Chayim, energy, life into every aspect of our beings. And who are we? Are we just physical people? We've got to go to gym. There's no question that a strong body is important. We have to eat food that's nourishing with the right balance of minerals, with the right balance of vitamins. We have to look after our body. We have to sleep. We have to eat. We have to get some sunshine, some exercise. We also need to address our emotions. They shouldn't be in turmoil. Our minds, they shouldn't lie stagnant. But above all, we have to remember that we are a soul living in a body put down into this world, and we need to live a synthesized life. And if any one of those components isn't being fed, we cannot feel the joy, the fulfillment. We cannot feel and hold on to a sense of purpose and meaning, which leads to fulfillment and absolute contentment, and then a passion to do more. And so we come to the Parsha this week. Couldn't resist saying, and Shabbos will be in at 6.07. Got to light your candles by 6.07. And please phone someone else today to remind them, not only is it Friday and we're going to light candles by 6.07, but we need to do it not only in the right time with the right brocha, and on 
the wings of that mitzvah, our personal prayers are pushed up. What a time to daven, to intercede, to ask for all that we need. So 6.07, candle lighting. Guess what time Shabbos goes out? I had to smile when I saw it because it's two minutes past seven. 702. So I asked Craigie, the controller, I said, Craigie, am I allowed to say 702 on 101.9? He said he thinks it's okay because it's just a number. 702 is when Shabbos will go out, but this is 101.9 High FM. And we are talking the fifth Parsha. And this, too, is a Parsha dedicated to the life of Avraham and Sarah, and yet, with a difference. We have Avraham in four parshas. He's born at the end of Noach. Lech Lecha and Vayera. That's the whole parshas about Avraham and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah. And the parsha this week is called the life of Sarah. So what do you expect the opening words to be? Something about Glory. Old age, achievement, contentment, but it's not. It's actually her death. And it's her passing, her burial, and nothing about her really, only about Abraham after she had passed away. It has to do thereafter with Abraham summoning Eliezer, his trusted servant, to go out and get a wife for his, fa- his son, Yitzchak, and how Eliezer betroths Abraham's grand niece to Yitzchak. For Abraham was one of three. Their father, Nahor, had Haran, and he had Nahor, he had Haran, and he had Nahor, and he had Avram. And three, these three sons, Avram, Nahor, and Haran, actually married one another, as it were. It was actually Haran who had three children. Sarah was Haran's daughter. And Milka was Haran's daughter, as was Lot, Haran's son. So we know Lot, the nephew of Avram and Sarah. And we're going to encounter the other brother, Nahor. Haran we won't encounter because he has passed away. And Nahor, the one brother, marries Milka, Haran's daughter. Avram, the other brother marries Sarah, but she's not called Sarah then. And the time for Yitzchak Shidduch makes Avram know that it's a member of the family that needs to become, should become, would be best to become the future wife of Yitzchak. We'll be right back after this short break. This is Conversations with Mashi Lipsker. Um, Mashi Lipsker. And we're talking Parshas Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah, which actually is anything but the life of Sarah. It starts with her death and burial. And then Avram's servant Eliezer goes to betroth Avram's grandniece to Yitzchak. Her name is Rivka. 
She's the granddaughter of his brother, Nahor. And then we have the marriage of Yitzhak and Rivka. And we have Avram's later life, where he remarries Hagar, and he has children. And then Avram passes on, and Yishmael makes a choice. He actually leaves his family and its divine mission. So why is the parsha called Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah? It's anything but. We need to understand what is life. And how does the parsha and the name of the parsha reflect the life of Sarah? Because it must. Because the name of the parsha must always reflect everything found in the parsha. How could her death and burial reflect her life? How could the next generation, the marriage of her son, after she's gone, reflect her life? And her later life, um, Avram's later life, where he remarries Hagar? How? What do all these things have to do with the life of Sarah? In fact, we have something else at the end of the Parsha which we'll speak about, and that could give us a clue. But for now, let us examine what was the life of Avraham and what was the life of Sarah. Avraham's life was dedicated to uplifting everyone to the theory, the idea of mono, monotheism, of ethical monotheism. Avraham's life was dedicated to welcoming everybody. It was a, a universalism. It was, we're not asking to see your, your book of life. We're not af- asking to see your driver's license. You're a human being. Come inside. Please eat. Please refresh yourself. And I want to tell you about the creator. Sarah joined him. Sarah was at his side. Sarah was the classical Azer Kenegdoi, a proper helpmeet, a proper partner. And as Avraham brought the men, Sarah brought the women under the wings of God's protection. She brought people close with her charm, with her attention, with her love, with her cooking, with her love, because she and Avraham epitomized chesed. They were made for each other. Their entire modus operandi was give. And yet we find in last week's parsha that although she had participated in Avraham's great dream and his great enterprise, and she was spreading the message of one God amongst the women, and she used the same undiscriminating eye, welcoming hand to everyone. And when the men would arrive, she also, she did not judge anyone. We find, however, in last week's parsha, when Yitzchak was born, and she was entrusted with raising a child, but not just any child. She knew that he was the heir to their work. A child who had to have the moral strength and the vision to carry on their divine mission. She realized 
that their universalism would now have to be tempered. Tempered, you couldn't be so free and outpouring and welcoming. But something called, well, maybe particularism had to be introduced if Avraham's life work was going to survive and continue and thrive. And it wasn't easy for her. You know, Avraham could afford to be unconditionally accepting as long as it was just he and his wife. They were a couple. They could expose themselves to anybody. But once they had to pass it on to a family, once they had to now inculcate, inspire a child to take on the mission of spreading divine consciousness, first to a family and ultimately to a nation. Steps had to be taken to ensure that that message would be passed on and it wouldn't be compromised and it would remain pure, focused, directed, and driven and not, God forbid, peter out. So many nations of the world had great things going. And if we examine what destroyed places like Rome and Greece and other places, you go to see. It's when you're not focused on a higher mission. It becomes about me, my pleasure, my gratification, exclusion of all those who don't fit in. But that was not what Sarah was about to do. Sarah now had the wonderful responsibility and obligation to nurture Avraham's successor. It was entrusted to her. She was an altemame. She was 90 years old and she has this baby. And Sarah undertook, despite that she was loving and giving, she undertook to insulate the family from negative influences to discern, to keep a watchful eye, to examine. My child cannot just play with anyone, play with anything, go anywhere, see anything, buy anything, spend time doing anything or nothing, and just being himself. He needs to be with me. I need to watch. I need to see. We're not talking about helicopter mom. But we are, in a sense, talking about a hands-on mom. And there's a difference. If you're next to your child and you're watching that he doesn't fall, it's not that you go to sleep and, of course, I'm giving him freedom and space. I'm busy eating. I'm busy socializing. You know what? He'll grow up. We all grew up. Not at all. Sarah and we, her children, have to take a lesson, a strong lesson, that as soon as Yishmael became a negative influence and his mother was either unwilling or maybe unable to get her child into check, Sarah insisted that they both be sent away. And this is something that we did not speak about last week because we spoke about Shabbos, but it's something that we need to examine. How could the kind Sarah 
send away this teenage boy who had been born in their home and send away his mother as well. And Avraham, it didn't sit so good with Avraham. He was troubled. But Hashem settled the matter. And Hashem told Avraham to listen to Sarah's voice. In all that Sarah shall say to you, hearken unto her voice. In fact, we're told that her divine prophecy, her Ruach HaKodesh, was superior to that of Avraham. And we've also mentioned that if it wasn't for the matriarchs, the great princely godly patriarchs would not have been able to bring their passions and dreams into practicality. Their wives grounded them. Their, gr- their wives enabled them to express their great ideas in this world. Hashem told Avraham, follow Sarah's advice. And he was saying, Avraham, your universalism has its place. And in its place, it's appropriate. But out of place, it becomes counterproductive. And then an amazing thing the Rebbe says. He says that the membranes of any organism can be porous. But if it doesn't have a finely honed immune system that determines what's passing through the membranes, its health will be compromised. Its integrity, the entire organism is compromised. And that's what Sarah applied to the raising of her child. In addition to that, Sarah knew that Avraham's family would have to constantly remember their role and not shy away from their destiny because they would always be involved with the world. That's Avraham's family. That's the Jewish nation. Because Hashem had charged him with a divine message and the divine message was to carry out his will. It was a divine mission. And, you know, in today's world, we continue to be driven by the chesed of Avraham and Sarah, their loving kindness. But as bearers of the divine message, charged with executing Hashem's mission, Avraham and his family would have to abandon any well-meaning notions of equivalence when it came to the rest of humanity. We are not the same. Look at a teacher. A teacher can and should always learn from their students. But if we are to educate successfully, a teacher must uphold his authority with the students. You know, Sarah's name means princess. She who reigns, rules. Not a despot, a beautiful princess. And she tried to imbue her family with this sense of moral nobility that would be crucial to the success of their divine career. Nevertheless, in addition to all of that, Sarah knew that she had to go against her nature here 
as Avraham would, as Avraham did some years later. She'd have to go against her nature when Avraham had to offer his son on the altar. How could the man of Chesed do this? Because it was the divine instruction. So the Parshas named the life of Sarah. And Rashi says that we see in the first Pasuk that the word years is repeated again and again. And we know Torah is so economical. doesn't sometimes use an extra letter without a good reason. And Rashi explains that at every stage of her life, Sarah reached perfection. And ultimately, all the years of her, her life were equal in goodness. Well, that raises a question. Her years were not equally good, not the way we look at it. I mean, can you compare the year she finally had her son to 75 years of childlessness? How could they all be equal in goodness? The years of yearning, the years of crying and praying, the years of doing for others to merit, the years of watching her youth slip away, the years of being resigned to never having a child. And then that glorious, glorious revelation that she'd become young again was with child. And then the day she had him, so beautiful, so perfect. How can you compare? Can you compare the time she was abducted by the men of Pharaoh and Pharaoh tried to, God forbid, violate her? And then later on, Avimelech, the greats of the time, the kings of the time, not only was her husband a prince, a king, but she was beautiful beyond description, inside and out, and desired by the rulers of the time. But for this holy woman to be in that sort of danger, could that have been as good as the times that she spent at Avraham's side, raising divine consciousness? How could we say that? When she saw Yishmael trying to have an influence on his younger brother, could that have been a good time? How could Rashi say, Kulon Shavin Lateva? And the Rebbe proposes various answers. Number one, the years of her life were equally good. Yes, she did experience many hardships and many challenges. But they were not her life, her highest. They were not her focus. Her life's purpose was to fulfill that divine mission that God had given her. And she remained consistent in her devotion to Hashem throughout the days, the weeks, the months, the years of her lifetime. So in that respect, all the years of her life were equally devoted to goodness. So Kulon Shovin Latova 
can be read as they were all equal in the goodness that she gave out despite her hardships and challenges. For she was immersed, no matter what she went through, in her mission. She might have been in Pharaoh's court. She was aware that God was there. He sent an angel to protect her. She communicated with the angel. She told him where and how and who was trying to hurt her. And he smote those people. He didn't kill them, but he he hit them. He pushed them away. And so she was connected her whole life. And all her life, she was dedicated to bringing goodness to Hashem and to doing goodness wherever she went. So all her years were equal in goodness. Another explanation the Rebbe offers. It says that every year of her life was as complete and perfect as it could possibly have been. Now, even though later ones were better, even though her later achievements even made her earlier ones look pale in comparison, at all times, she lived up to her full potential. And we understand. We are meant to grow in life. But the past becomes a building block for the future. We cannot we cannot be 21 if we weren't 1. We cannot turn 25 if we weren't 15. Another thing. The time Sarah spent preparing for her divine mission was just as valuable as the time she spent fulfilling it. And we need to know that education and preparation are themselves an essential part of divine living. So when we get ready for Shabbos, it's already a living the divine mission. It's not just Shabbos. All day Friday, when we say the Shema before we go to bed, we're preparing to go to sleep. Did you know that if our purpose in sleeping is to have strength to do our divine mission, then every second of that sleep is also service of God. There's nothing in our lives, not our eating, not our sleeping, not our dressing, not our speaking, parenting our children, nurturing our spouses, caring about the neighbors. It's all part of our divine mission. So with Sarah, some things were preparation, education for another level, but they were all equal in goodness. Let's just go for this break, and then I'll rejoin you. This is Conversations with Mashi Lipsker. A good near of Shabbos. This is 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Mashi Lipsker. I'm delighted to be with you on this Erev Shabbos Parshas. Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah. And we've just spoken that the entire Parsha deals with everything and anything but her life. It starts with her burial. It continues with her son's marriage. It even goes on that Avraham remarries Hagar. And it speaks of Yishmael. So how are all these things her life? Well, it's very important for us to look at each one of these things in relationship to Sarah. 
and in a word we can say, Sarah shared Avraham's passion for Eretz Yisrael. And the plot that he bought was a piece, the first piece of Eretz Yisrael bought by a Jew. And although the Chitim, the Bnei Ches wanted to give it to him, he said, no, I want to buy it and I want to buy it for full money, that it should never, ever be contested. I want to give you the best coins that are recognized and accepted everywhere. In those days, they used to weigh the money and it had the individual's stamp on it. And Avraham's coins were known to be Oiver la Soicher. They were Kantarim. They were good tender wherever. And Avraham insisted on paying because that was involved with Jewish destiny and Sarah shared his passion for Jewish destiny. So let's just stop a moment and say as follows. In the cave of Machpelah, which was on the edge of the field of Ephron of Ches, Ephron the Hittite, were buried Adam and Eve. And so as such, it actually belonged to all of humanity. But when Avraham bought it, he actually articulated Hashem's intention that the mission was originally for all of humanity, the mission to make this world a dwelling place for Hashem. But in the 20 generations, from creation of the world and Adam until the birth of Abraham, People had not lived up to the task. People were not interested in the mission. They weren't interested in being God-serving, but self-serving. To use God's beautiful world and all of the wonderful abilities he put into them for pleasure, for comfort, until Avraham arose. And now Avraham, in purchasing this, Avraham was expressing his taking on of the mission. So the mission originally given to all of humanity was now being passed on to the Jewish people. And basically, by taking on that mission, which Abraham did on behalf of all of us, it was that the nation of Abraham, the Jewish nation, were fundamentally now separating themselves from the rest of humanity and rising up to the role of mentors, educators. In today's very universalist, oh boy, in today's very, very um, inclusive world, it's our challenge to recognize that this is our destiny as well. And when we live up to our destiny, living as proud Jews, the rest of the world takes note. That is the key. That is our mission. It is through that that we bring peace and balance to the world. So much has been said this week on this radio as well about what happened last Shabbos in Pittsburgh. This is the next Shabbos. We need to know that Shabbos blesses all the days of the week and is blessed by 
all the days of the week or it collects up all the days of the week. Whatever we've done this week elevates our Shabbos. Whatever happened last Shabbos has blessed this week. But how have those events been a blessing? They can only be a blessing if we see them in the light of our mission, which was started by Avraham and Sarah. It's important that we not only be in shul this week to show overt Jewish pride, to flood the shuls, to make it like a kol nidre capacity attendance, but at the same time to look at the lives of our father and mother Avraham and Sarah and learn from them as to how they dealt with every day of the week, with their challenges, their hardships, their disappointments. They're on so many occasions seeming potential disaster, destruction, and how Hashem each time only raised them to a higher, miraculously higher level. And this is a parsha where Sarah's dream is perpetuated by Avraham buying a portion in the land. And how is it that the marriage of Yitzchak and Rivka, the next generation, and then Rivka comes to live in her mother-in-law's tent? How can that be the life of Sarah? She's being replaced. We just need to look at an amazing thing that happens. And the amazing thing is that after the many miracles that are shown to Eliezer, as he goes to Aram Naharaim to find a wife for Yitzchak, and he brings her back miraculously, Yitzchak does not immediately marry her. Eliezer explains to him, Do you know that a 17-day journey took me only one day? Do you know that when she approached the water, it was evening, all the girls were going out with their jugs on their shoulders to draw water in the middle of the city from the well. And I prayed. I prayed. And I hadn't even finished praying. I was still talking to Hashem when she approached and the waters rose to greet her. Immediately I focused my attention on her because I knew that this could be the beginning of an answer. And Eliezer continued to tell Yitzchak more of the miracles. And he told him how what he prayed for was not only fulfilled but fulfilled in the highest possible manner. He had hardly finished speaking. What was his prayer? His prayer at the well was, he said, Hashem, God of my master Abraham, arrange for me on this day such that you grant a favor to my master Abraham. Here I stand by the spring of water and the daughters of the townsmen are coming out to draw water. 
let it be that the maiden to whom I say, please tilt your pitcher that I may drink. And if she answers drink, and I will also give your men and your camels, well, that'll be the one that you've designated for your servant, Isaac Yitzchak. And why would that be a good sign? She'll be a fitting match because she's showing such consideration and generosity. And that'll prove that she can become a member, a worthy member of Avraham's household. And let her be from his family, which Avraham wants, and a suitable companion for Yitzchak. And that's how I'll know that you have acted kindly with my master. And that's the prayer. What an appropriate prayer. And the Torah tells us he had not yet finished speaking to Hashem when this three-year-old Rivka, Rebecca, came out. Rebecca, who had been born to Besuel, Betuel, the youngest son of Milka, wife of Avraham's brother, Nahor. And her jug was on her shoulder, and she was very beautiful. And she went down to the spring, and she filled her pitcher, put it back on her shoulder, and came up. And Eliezer ran toward her because of all these incredible signs. And he said, if you would, let me zip a little water from your pitcher, from your jug. She said, drink, sir, and quickly lowered her pitcher from her shoulder onto her hand, and she gave him a drink. And when she'd finished, she said, let me draw water for your men and your camels also until they've had enough, till they've drunk their fill. And we know camels can drink a lot. And so it was that she quickly entered her jug. And all of this, and she, this little girl, although she wasn't so little, though she was three in those days, she gave all his ten camels to drink. What a job. And then invited him to come and stay at their house. So we see a scenario, and Yitzchak is listening, but he's not yet convinced. What would it take to convince Yitzchak? So Yitzchak first brought her into the tent of his mother. And as we mentioned last week, there were three miracles that existed throughout the lifetime of Sarah. One, there was a cloud tied to her tent, signifying God's presence in that tent. Secondly, there was a blessing in her dough. It never soured. They didn't have gold star or anchor yeast or whatever. She had to have a starter, like in sourdough bread. And whoever ate of her food was satiated with a little bit and sustained for a long time. There was something miraculous about her bread. And thirdly, when she lit her candles on Friday afternoon, they burnt and burnt throughout the week. Until it was time to light the candles again, and then they went out so she could relight them. Of course, there's spiritual significance in all this. So Yitzchak decides, I don't know yet if she's the one. He brought her into the tent. And what happens? First, she's busy with the dough. And the same miracle returns. 
The cloud returns, but he doesn't yet know, although it's looking good, until Shabbos. And she lights the candles. She says the bracha, whatever. But now they have to wait. And unlike the candles that Abraham lit, for every home needs candles, whether there's a woman or not, those candles, Abraham's candles burnt like yours and mine. They were out in a few hours. Her candles were still lit the next morning, throughout the next day, the next one. They burned brightly. And then he knew by the next Shabbos, they just went out next Friday afternoon and she lit them again. And that's why it says he brought her into the tent of his mother. And he married her and he loved her. And in this we see that the legacy of Sarah continues. So that was Sarah's life. And even Hagar and Yishmael, because Sarah had sent them away, they actually grew close to Hashem again, and Yishmael as well did Teshuvah. And therefore Sarah's influence extended far beyond her death. And we see it in the Parsha of Chaye Sarah. I wish you all a good Shabbos. I wish you all a good Tomid. May we merit protection, peace, to grow, to give, to follow the legacy of Abraham and Sarah and never give up. And may our additional deeds immediately herald the day of Mashiach when all of mankind and the entire universe will finally be a home for Hashem. Good Shabbos.